listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome back. We're going to jump right in. I'm just coming out of the gate guns blazing. I was I'm prepared today. I've got notes. And I also have a strong sense that if I don't get this out on the first take, I'm not going to get it out at all. And so I'm going to treat this recording session as if I was speaking live to a real audience in person, which as many of you know, is my favorite form of communication, my, my chosen medium of expression. Um, what I miss most about being a evangelical Christian leader is I, I used to get to talk to groups a lot. Even when I was at USC, I used to get to speak to groups a lot. Now I'm a therapist most of the time and I talk to people one-on-one -on -one, and I love that, but it's not the same. And there's a kind of thinking, a kind of communication, a kind of aliveness that comes over me when I'm talking to a group of people in person that is really hard for me to generate in any other setting. And so I'm, I'm using my imagination right now. I'm going to talk as if there were 15 or 20 people sitting in front of me, um, as if I was back at Caravan, uh, which is our, our, our local community here in Cincinnati that, that has been on hiatus since COVID began. And I'm s desperately hoping we can jumpstart again in the early part of 2022. So anyway, I was reading the New York Times Magazine this morning. What do they call it? The New York Times Style Magazine. That's it. That's the one that's full of glossy photographs and designer art and fashion wear. And there's just a couple of articles, usually profiles of artists and uh, writers, but they're all ensconced in gorgeous clothes and gorgeous settings. It, it, it's, it's kind of an intellectual vogue magazine, I guess you would call it. And uh, it comes with the Sunday Times. And I still sometimes get the Sunday Times and came today. And I was looking at this magazine and I became overwhelmed. I read some articles about poets and filmmakers. I looked at some photographs of beautiful homes that people had crafted and artwork. And the more I read about all these artists and writers and activists and designers and their big, beautiful, hugely productive lives, the more intimidated I was, the smaller I felt. Um, and yet, I would... It, it was kind of a battle because I was inspired. I, I, there, as I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, I want to watch that person's movie. I, I, there was an article about Tony Kushner who wrote um, Angels in America and just collaborated with Steel, Steven Spielberg on a new version of West Side Story. And it's controversial. And he talked about it and these other works. And the more I read, I thought, oh, I want to see that. I want to read that. I remember that movie. I, I love that quote. And so on the one hand, I was inspired by this person living a big life, 
connected to great talent, being hugely fecund, hugely productive. And on the other hand, I thought, damn it, I can't even get on a podcast every week. And my house is interesting, but it's, it's not like these places I'm looking at in the pictures. And I suddenly realized, why do I do that to myself? Not, not why do I read these magazines and see these things? I mean, there are a few things to say. One is I've been profiled in magazines. Heck, I've been profiled in the New York Times magazine. And if somebody read that profile, they would think that I was one of those brilliant, creative, productive people. And I know better. And so on some level, I, I ought to be reading this through a filter where I think, hey, these people, they're being spun in the most beautiful way. But then I think about somebody like Steven Spielberg and doggone it, he is amazing. I mean, if you just look at the body of work, the amount of connections, the things he's produced, I go, okay, I'm dazzled. And that's when I thought, but Steven Spielberg's not like me. I don't have his biology or his temperament. I wasn't raised in his circumstances. Whatever that drive thing, that focus thing that he has, I don't have it. The same way somebody with ADHD looks at me and says, gosh, the way he's able to focus, I don't have. We're all on a spectrum, if you will. Even if we're not on the spectrum, we're on the spectrum. We're just at the really lucky end of it. And I thought, yeah. I mean, he and Tony Kushner, they put together this West Side Story thing and they wrote a whole script for it during COVID which devastated me and laid me low in terms of my creativity. And I don't think I've, I, I, I don't think, I know I still haven't recovered my level of energy and my level of engagement. And as I was reflecting on all of this, I was reminded of a conversation I had just two days earlier with a young woman who I consider to be full of goodness and potential, bright, interested, thoughtful, and yet a woman who, since she was a very young person, has struggled with suicidal ideation, has, tr has struggled to believe that in the absence of of, Christ, of the Christian faith she grew up in and was ultimately not able to hold on to, in the absence of God, that there is no meaning, no true meaning to life, that nothing really matters because nothing is ultimate, nothing is eternal, nothing will last. And this is not an uncommon thought. This is not an uncommon thing that I find among post-Christians or post-believers of any kind of situation of ultimate meaning or, or, or schema of ultimate meaning is that when they cease to believe that there is an objective, ultimate, eternal truth or a person behind that truth validating it, that they so go, then what's the point? I mean, people often, Christian people often come to me and go like, gosh, if I didn't believe in God, I mean, what's the point of being a good person? What's the point of doing anything? I think I would just kill myself. And I think to myself, that's such an, a bizarre thought to me. The idea that 
if life has no ultimate or eternal meaning, then it, 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 it has no meaning at all. I mean, what, and what's interesting is like, I don't believe that life itself is meaningful. I don't believe that the universe is meaningful. What Say, what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of existence? What's the meaning of the universe? I don't think there is any. I don't think anybody started it with meaning in mind. I don't think there's any grand purpose. But it seems clear to me that life is full of meaning. And that that meaning is something that we create by caring about each other. And so it, it was funny because as I was looking at this New York magazine and then reflecting on my conversation with this young woman, I thought what I ended up saying to her is, hey, it's not about ultimate meaning or eternal meaning or universal meaning, something that's meaningful to everybody, that, that what makes life worth meaning is about mattering to someone. It's very finite and temporal and temporary and that we create meaning by caring about each other or by caring about things or about caring about ideas, by finding something beautiful or life-giving or worthwhile. And it reminded me of this letter I had written um, right after I read Brian Greene's, well, I shouldn't say I read it, right after I got through the first 15 pages of Brian Greene's Still Too Hard For Me physics book, The Fabric of the Cosmos, because the thing that, that struck me was it started with this quotation from Albert Camus, who said, there is but one truly philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Whether or not the world has three dimensions or the mind nine or 12 categories comes afterwards. There is only one truly philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Man, I, I, I get that. And it's not because I routinely struggle with suicidal ideation, although I've struggled with it at times. It reminds me of Norm MacDonald, the, the great comedian who, who recently passed. In his last special, there comes a point where he's talking about suicide. And he says, you know, people always go like, I just don't understand it. And he says, really? You don't understand somebody kill, killing themselves? I mean, I'm surrounded by people for whom the great, what Brian Greene calls the great question of science and everything else, what will convince someone and especially someone in pain that life is worth living? That's the question. I find myself wrestling with when I'm talking to depressed people, when I'm talking to people in, in great pain or in great grief. And I, you know, I don't have the answer, but I know this much. We do not speak openly enough about what makes or could make our own lives worthwhile. And we talk about our loved ones, we talk about our favorite activities or our hopes for the future or our great memories from the past, but we very seldom figure out loud how such blessings stack up against our very real sufferings, let alone acknowledge the occasional allure of suicide. We don't often say, this is why I stay in the game. This thing happened and this is, this is what I lay on the scale against the tragedy and despair that I have experienced and that I know I will experience in the future. Instead, we, 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 we pretend that, that such calculations aren't necessary, which I think too often leaves people doing the math alone in the moment when they're most likely to make a mistake. 
because we don't talk about it together, because it's not part of the conversation, what makes life worthwhile? How do we fight off the urge to destroy ourselves sometimes? A person is in that moment that they don't feel like they can talk about it out loud and they haven't overheard anyone else talking about how they did it so that they can, you know, maybe fudge or, or, or copy off somebody else's cheat sheet for a moment, like you're doing a real math test. And so people make mistakes and they miscalculate. Yeah, I, I find myself whenever I'm in that conversation with people, always talking about that what makes life meaningful, what makes it matter enough to be worth the trouble is our connections. It's always connections. Johan Hari, that, that when, when we were on and we were talking about his book, Lost Connections, he, you know, he would say the same thing. It's about connections. And I don't just mean human connections, although human connections, connections to other people are a big part of it for a lot of us. But there are other people for whom the connection is to an object of beauty or an endeavor of a challenging endeavor a, 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 to answering a question that is compelling, an idea. E even, I think even the connection we have to suffering or oppression or injustice, in, in a sense, when something really bothers us, when something really upsets us, when something violates our sense of what's right and good, I think that's a connection to something. It's a connection to a vision of how things ought to be. It's, it's funny, I, 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 you, you, we all know that I'm not a man who believes in God. Uh, but I was reading the other day, uh, uh, I read this unpublished poem, this uh, interview with the, what do they call it? The, 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 the guy who manages W.H. Auden's um, poetry. But the guy's name was Edward Mendelssohn. And Edward Mendelssohn was reflecting on this poem called The Dialectic that was unpublished. And he said, when, when Auden wrote this book, he was returning to the Anglican church that he thought he had abandoned forever at the age of 13. And, and, and Mendelssohn said, look, his religion had no super element, supernatural elements, I'm quoting this, but, but instead focused on moral absolutes that he thought of as having the same kind of truth that the laws of physics have. He, he, he kept mentioning something called the unconditional, the unconditional. And what he meant was that was his secular synonym for an adult's concept of God. And he said, the unconditional is this kind of truth that is inexorable, can't be escaped. And it's funny because the, the, the interviewer said, I, I got like an example. And he said, for example, if you lie to yourself, you can't escape suffering from the conflict you create in yourself. You're free to lie, but not to escape the consequences of lying. You are constrained. Like if you, it's like if you step off a cliff, you are constrained by gravity. You will fall. And it's like, you're free to jump, but you're not free to escape the rules of gravity. Those are inexorable. And Auden believed that the unconditional, sort of his secular God, these ideas, he said, you can't escape these. And, 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 Mendelssohn quotes a, a couplet from the poem where he says, either we serve the unconditional or some Hitlerian monster will supply an iron convention to do evil by. 
He's like, look, you, we need to serve the unconditional. We need to arrange our lives in, in relationship to the unconditional, to, to the truths that are inescapable. Now, I'm not here to say what those things are, but that idea that Auden had was that there were some ideas that we have a relationship to and we either serve them or disobey them at our peril. And it isn't because there's a God who will punish us. It's just the nature of the universe. It is like the laws of physics. Indeed, on some level, it is the law of physics. And people, what I ended up saying to my young friend when in that conversation a few days ago was that meaning is made by connections. That what makes life worthwhile is our connection with another person or, or, a group or a community or an idea or a job or an endeavor or drama or writing poetry or gardening, that it's when we connect to something and love it that that thing begins to matter to us, that that is a part of life and we are a part of life. And so when we matter to someone else or when they matter to us, meaning is generated sui generis, out of nothing. Ex nihilo, I think that's the right phrase. And so what I found myself saying was like, stop looking for ultimate absolute, or if I'm reading the New York Times style magazine, universal or large scale meaning. I mean, maybe if you're Steven Spielberg, you can have that, or maybe even that's an illusion. All I know is, is that most of us live small lives. I live a small life. My life has gotten smaller and smaller as I've gotten older. My time of greatest influence and, and, and sort of power and, and, and connection to thousands of people was, you know, 25 years ago. And I've been shrinking ever since. And you say, well, th th does that bother you? And I go, like, I guess on some level it does. On some level, even on this podcast, I wish that I had hundreds of thousands, millions even. Joe Rogan, I'm coming for you. I, I mean, I wish. But the reality is, as small as my life is, I feel deeply connected to ideas, sure. To some objects, I I've talked to you about my bicycle and what it means to me. I can think of certain volumes, books that mean that way. The house that I live in has, is becoming that way. It's becoming something that matters to me. But mostly for me, it's people. And I guess, I guess what I wanted to say to that young woman is, is that meaning, mattering is something that is within your grasp that you can make yourself matter to something or you can, but you can develop talents and skills and abilities that will enable you to find people to whom you could matter and you can engage them and you can become a part of their lives and you can, you can, you can ingratiate you, yourself, you can connect yourself to people in such a way that you end up mattering to them, that there's so many people out there for whom you can matter. Not everybody. Some people are, are, are 
for all different kinds of reasons, there are people that are outside of the scope, outside of your ability to matter to them, but there are always people that you could matter to. And, and even more exciting is that there are endeavors, there are forms of art and communication, there are hobbies, there are foods, there are smells, there are landscapes, there are sounds that could matter to you, that you could develop a taste for, that you could learn to love. And that indeed somebody, sometimes, you know, it, there are things called acquired tastes. That there's something and you go like, that doesn't mean, you know, cricket means nothing to me. It's a boring game and stuff like that. And, they, and then you find out like there are people that used to feel that way about cricket, cricket, but they married somebody who loves cricket. And so they learned the rules of the game and, the, and they learned to understand it. And then they came to love it in its own right. I, I watched a documentary about Leeds United, a football team I had never cared about, didn't know a thing about. And now I follow them all the time and I'm, I'm totally up on them because I know their history and all that stuff. It's an acquired taste. I didn't care. And now I do. 2-2 Brentford. I looked it up first thing this morning. Wouldn't have even known Brentford or Leeds United existed six months ago. The world is full of things that you could learn to love. And if you began to love those things, they would become meaningful to you and life would have new meaning. You, cre you can create min meaning by caring. You can create meaning by ingratiating yourself in such a way that they care for you. And you say, but you're going to die. And all the people you love are going to die. And I used to play that song all the time, you know, that you're going to die someday. Baby, what's the big deal? You know, and she sings about this, you know, if I kiss you or if I don't kiss you, because we're going to die someday. We're all going to die. Everybody you know is going to die. And every bit of meaning that you create will be wiped clean. And none of it will matter eternally. And none of it will last. And indeed, this whole everything you build will crumble to dust. And everything you create and even the memory of you will, will be gone. And every single person that existed 500 years ago is gone. And most of them are completely forgotten. And even the ones that are remembered are only remembered for accomplishments that are probably misunderstood. Nobody knew, nobody who ever knew them is around. Nobody, no, no true knowledge of their true character exists. None of us matter on that scale. But oh my goodness. John Wright, the fellow who produces this podcast, who you often hear me talk about, he matters to me. We've, we, when we talk, I feel so connected to him. He matters. My, Marty matters so much to me. My little granddaughter who didn't exist three years ago is, matters more to me than I can even put into words. It's funny, I heard Mark Marin talking to George Clooney the other day and Marin's a cynical guy who's never had any children and he said Clooney's talking about having had kids late in life and, and falling in love late in life and Marin says, you know, you're not going to tell me that, that like this has changed everything and now you're alive and nothing can compare to this and, and, and you're not going to wax eloquent about it and Clooney goes, yeah, Mark, I am. There's nothing that's ever delighted me like my children. And that's not to say that people can't have delight who don't have children or grandchildren or whatever. It's just to say that things open up to us, new things come to us, and, and they become meaningful when they weren't before. 
it's available. That that's 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 what I'm saying. It's 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 available. Gosh, I lost the thread there. I guess I guess it's the finiteness. Yeah, it's the finitude. It's the fact that it's all going to get wiped away. And you go like, well, then what's the point? And the point is here. And the point is now. And the point is in the present. All the meaning that exists in the world is temporal. Every bit of meaning is only meaningful. And, and, and if there's a nuclear explosion tomorrow that blows up the whole world, no matter how meaningful you were today, you won't mean anything tomorrow because there'll be nobody left for you to mean anything to. And that doesn't mean that today Today doesn't matter. In fact, today is all that matters. Or your memory of yesterday or your hope of tomorrow. But even your memory of yesterday and your hope of tomorrow are rooted in today. They're rooted in the now. So yeah, it all fades. It all goes away. But you could make some today. You could experience some today. You have access to meaning. You could tell me there's no meaning to it and I'll agree with you. But there's plenty of meaning in it because you matter to me and I matter to you and Leeds United matters to me and gardening matters to my wife and the memory of her mother matters to us both. And that lovely young woman who I was talking to the other day, she matters to me. I mean, that was the funny thing is she was telling me, I don't think anything matters. And I found myself looking at her and going, hey, kid, you matter to me right now. I'm not making this up. You matter to me. This conversation matters to me. We're creating meaning as we speak because we're creating connection. Camus had another quote that a friend of mine sent me the other day. He knows I like good quotes. Camus said, if there is a sin against life, it consists not so much in despairing as in hoping for another life, which is, I would say, is the sin of my young friend who hopes for a life of ultimate and eternal significance because she was taught to believe such, such kid could exist because she was taught to believe in God. Camus says, if there, is sin, if there is a sin against life, it consists not so much in despairing as in hoping for another life and in eluding the implacable grandeur of this one. The grandeur of this one. That's what I'm selling today, friends. I'm selling the implacable grandeur of this one, even if you're not in New York Times style magazine. Even if you don't do anything amazing that everyone remembers forever. So you're going to, you're doing all these quotes. What's with the quotes? Why are you quoting everybody? And the answer is this, is that one of the things that I'm realizing COVID took from me is my energy and ability to pull people together in, in community. The reason my, my group caravan hasn't convened again is because I keep making promises and then not being able to follow through on them. And I'm struggling a lot with trying to figure out why I can't pull the group together again, like I used to pull groups together in my sleep. And... I think a big part of it is, is that the inspiring ideas that I used that, that make me want to get to get, get a group together. I used to think it's because I have inspiring ideas and I want to talk about big things and I want to, I want the music and the, and, and all that stuff. And, and 
that's why I want to pull together the group, but that's not true. It turns out that I was always in a group or there was always a group of people in front of me. And then I would come up with stuff to share because like there's a group of people looking for inspiration. And so I would study up or I would read the New York Times magazine, style magazine, or I would read some Camus because I was always mining and hunting for information to share with my people. And now that I haven't seen my people for a couple of years, and my life is smaller than it used to be. And I, I just see people one at a time. I, I don't, I haven't been, I haven't been inspired. I haven't been forced. I haven't been burdened by next week's meeting or next month's meeting that I have to get ready for. And so I'm realizing I, I just got to put something on the calendar, commit myself to doing it. And then I'll find the inspiration rather than waiting until I'm inspired to put something on the calendar. One of the last great things we did at Caravan before we abandoned it that I think about all the time is we did a thing on scripture because it was all these people either who never were connected to a holy scripture or who were and, 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 it, and it, it let them down and, and they abandoned it. And I thought how much I still quote Bible verses and how, many, how, many, how much those stories are a part of Western culture and how beautiful some of them are and how true some of the quotes are and, and some of the images that I use. It's funny because in my counseling practice, I counsel believers and I often am quoting scripture. When they quote scripture to me, I quote scripture right back at them. And I thought about this last caravan meeting we had where we talked about the need for scripture, the need for quotes that we reflect on over and over again, not always looking for a new one, but that we have sort of a canon. These are the most important quotes in our lives and we reflect on them and we memorize them so that they come to us quickly in a moment of crisis or in a conversation where somebody needs a familiar kind of encouragement. And we know the quote because we've, we've used that quote over and over again. Where we have quotes that we share in common with friends so that when we mention them, they go like, oh, yeah, yeah, they've reflected on that quote too. And it sort of immediately draws to mind the whole emotion, the whole history of that passage in their life and all the other circumstances in which it has been meaningful. And so it lends it a kind of an authority or a power that is different than just saying something out of thin air. You know, the great thing about scripture is, is that when we have them in common, when we share a scripture with somebody, when there's a text that matters to all of us together, then we can discuss it and, and talk about how it applies in particular situations. The, the way Christians do with scripture, or the way that my friends up in Boston do with the Harry Potter, you know, the people that do the Harry Potter Bible study, you know, they're like, look, they don't think there's anything divine in the book, but there's something divine about talking about a moral text with other people and trying to figure out what it means and what parts of it are true and how it applies to their life. That's what my wife used to do with Lectio Divina. And she said the scriptures were never more powerful to her than when she was reflecting on them word by word and, and not trying to figure out what God was saying, but trying to figure out what these words meant to her in this moment. And she would do it in a group. And so I, I think a lot about scripture and I think that Probably all we secular people need to be collecting quotes and 
figuring out which ones of them are timeless and which ones of them we use over and over again and then writing them down and gradually in our own lives creating our own scripture, our own book of important ideas and quotations that we can draw upon. And of course, in my book, there are a lot of Ingersoll quotes. And so as I was thinking about meaning, I... I, I, I went looking for an Ingersoll quote about the meaning of life or meaning in life or how meaning works in life. And there were a thousand of them, but none of them were exactly what I wanted. And then I found the one that I wanted and it was full of 19th century sexist language. And I thought, I, I can't use this. The language is so distracting that, that, that people would, even I, I, I like I, I see the truth, but like I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a white man like Ingersoll, and I'm pretty forgiving of white men using white man stuff. But like, there's there too much in this one. And then I thought, wait a second, nobody, nobody knows Ingersoll very well. I can just rewrite this, and nobody will know the difference. So I'm telling you because you're my friends, and you might look it up. But this is my sort of Frankenstein version of an Ingersoll quote that I think is really valuable. The grandest ambition that anyone can possibly have is to so live and so improve themselves in heart and brain as to be worthy of the love and adoration of some splendid, significant other. That is my idea. There is no meaning in life without emotional connection. You had better be the emperor or empress of one loving and tender heart. And he or she be the emperor or empress of yours. Than to be the ruler of the world. The person who has truly won the love of one good friend in this world. I do not care if they die in the ditch a beggar. Their life has been a success and they have mattered. How about it? How about it, my friends? How about we talk more about what we enjoy most in this world? Or, what's our low, or what was our lowest moment? How about if we asked someone else once in a while what they're curious about or working on? What's the question that vexes them the most? Who they most admire or why they hold on when things get really hard? What if we admitted to the young people around us that there were moments we wished we were dead? What if more of us started more conversations about how we convince ourselves or our friends who are in pain or in grief that life is worth living in spite of the pain and along with the grief? How about if we enjoyed the lives and the accomplishments of people who are wired differently or who are somehow endowed with gifts that enable them to live big lives and produce great accomplishments. But reminded ourselves that in the end, 
nothing great or small will last. And that what really matters is being connected ourselves, perhaps to their works, but more likely to one another or to our garden or to our book or our basketball game. There are so many people like my young friend who are questioning whether life has any meaning or maybe more importantly, whether their lives can possibly have meaning in the face of their smallness, their limitations, their brokenness, their finitude. And I am literally here to tell you that it's our job to convince them and ourselves that mattering to one another is all it takes, is all that matters. Letting things matter to us and mattering to one another, that's all there is. And the fact that it will all be gone some day in the future in no way evacuates it of its preciousness, of its worth, of its incomparable value in this moment, in this life. All right, I got through it. Are you proud of me? I hope you're proud of me. I, I, I'm proud of myself. I did it. I got through it. Now listen, at some point, I'm going to overcome my COVID funk. I mean, we did actually, John and I did do a show on Patreon and, and, and it's waiting for you if you're a Patreon person and, and you should go check it out. It's a, it's, a, it's a cool reflection show about where the podcast has been this past year. And uh, that doesn't matter. What matters is you. And the fact that you care enough to have gotten this far in the podcast means that you're one of the ones who's figured it out and needs to share it. And that's what we're doing here on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life